Good evening. This is Cinema Sixty. Bart, Slava Boho. Is that Ukrainian? Yep. You know, we just watched a bunch of Ukrainian films for this episode, and I've, I, I think I've started to to hear the difference between Ukrainian and Russian a little bit. The O's are more open, or something. It's, uh, it's got more of a you know, sort of a Polish sound to it, or something. But uh, well, don't tell them that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. We're covering films of the Ukraine, of Ukraine. We're covering the films of Ukraine. See, I'm an 80s kid, and I can't not say the Ukraine. It's, uh, it's apparently I, offensive, so don't I say know, it. I know, I know, I know. You messed up already. I know. <laughs> so a little little background. I'm going to jump right into my reasoning for, for why we're doing this episode. So Russia invaded Ukraine, and we said to ourselves, hey, we've got this Parajanov episode that we've uh, got mapped out that we've been waiting to do for uh, for a long time, and and maybe now is the time get some uh, cover some Ukrainian films. Well, it turns out that uh, Parajanov did uh, Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors, which is the most famous Ukrainian film of the '60s. But uh, he also did Color of Pomegranates, a Ukrainian film. I mean, a, an Armenian film and he's he's not he's not ukrainian himself so we decided well maybe we'll wait to do him give him his own episode and uh let's let's to show our support for ukraine we'll uh we'll cover the uh some other films that came out in the 60s uh which is uh by some accounts the golden age of ukrainian cinema still under uh the watchful eye of uh, of Moscow and the Soviets, but Dovchenko Studios in Kiev, they're putting out some really pretty fascinating films in the 60s, and we wanted to gather up as many as we could find and, and check it out, see what it's all about. Yeah, that was pretty much... I don't want to do everything all at once. In, I felt like it would be doing a disservice to call something Ukrainian films and just pick and choose... So we basically tried to just get every single Ukrainian film by Ukrainian filmmakers or that was about specifically about Ukraine that we could pack into an episode, which, as you said, meant that we had to cut the biggest names right. <laughs> just because they had so much that was too, too intriguing to, you know, to skip some and do others. And so now we ended up with kind of the, the other b- bits. <laughs> 
But that's not to say that any of these are bad. I actually thought all of these movies were really intriguing. And in a way, they all kind of do tell the story of uh, Ukrainian cinema in the 60s, specifically the the sort of search for a Ukrainian national cinema that is what uh, the Dovzenko Film Studios was was sort of founded on. This really was a, a fantastic batch of movies um, that we had here. Like this is, I, I want every episode we do to be like this, where it's just a bunch of unknown films that are lost treasures, like things that people should be watching, but they're, they're forgotten about. Um, the other big name besides Sergei Parjanov that we're not doing in this episode is Yuri Ilyenko. And the, the two of them work together um, and are kind of easy to talk about together. So, uh, so we're, we're skipping those two and, and doing like literally everything else we could find from Ukraine in the sixties that is in Ukrainian. There actually was a whole, whole cinema based in Odessa that, um, I mean, they're Ukrainian films. Kira Mortova is, uh, you know, one of the biggest names from, from the, uh, the Odessa studios, but those were all in Russian. So we wanted, and, and they didn't have the same, you know, goal to, to create a Ukrainian cinema the way that Dovchenko studios based in Kiev did. So we've, we've avoided all of the, all of the Ukrainian films that are, uh, that are not in, in Ukrainian. And that we could find. And that we could find. <laughs> because we can't find a lot of them. And it was especially not, you know, it's like, this is still one of the, the worst things is how hard it is to find Soviet film, especially, you know, with any kind of translation or with any kind of like information in English. You know, I feel like this is still a, you know, this is when I went to college, I took a, a course on um, Soviet cinema Throughout all the years, it was very kind of 101, but it was really fascinating and kind of started me on my obsession with Soviet cinema. And even, you know, then uh, my, my teacher was like, yeah, you pretty much have to learn Russian. <laughs> like if you want to like really get information about this because it's just not translated, you know, and I guess that's partially the fact that the U.S. and Russia and, and the rest of the English-speaking world and, and, you know, Russia never really made nice enough, I suppose. I, I'm sure the artists are more than happy to share, but... Yeah, and I feel like there's, you know, just so much suppression of of art or, you know, an unwillingness to share um, with, with people well, west of the Iron Curtain that, uh, that we're still, like, we're way behind, we're, we're still trying to catch up. Well, I would probably in this, I mean, like, f funny enough, I mean, Moss Film now, uh, I know this is off topic, basically, but if you go on YouTube, Moss Film has pretty much all of their movies streaming for free because it's, they're, they're, they're you know, communists. Yeah. <laughs> they're like, here you go, here it is. But they don't all have translations. And so it's sort of a matter of, you know, uh, and it sucks. Some of them, and they're like really nice restored copies of things that are just free on YouTube. And some of them do have English subtitles that you can turn on. But um, so it's like they're they're out there. And then there's also that whole website that um, you made a whole letterbox list about like Soviet cinema. Yeah, that was available. Yeah, but uh, there isn't much Ukrainian there. And uh, these transfers that I that we were able to dig up. They're not a couple of them actually were recently restored and look great, but the subtitles on pretty much all of them are underwhelming. Um, <laughs> that's, that's, that's kind of the big problem for, 
for for me and for watching a lot of this stuff is even if you find it and it has subtitles, you've got to work to really understand what's going on because the you know a lot of the idiomatic language is just translated directly and it doesn't make much of an attempt to to put things into idiomatic English and uh, so I mean. Fortunately, a lot of these films don't have a lot of dialogue. They're, they're, they're strongly vid- visual films. Uh, so, so that the, uh, the poor subtitles were not that much of a problem, but, uh, it's something that needs to be remedied. We, we need more of this stuff available with good English subtitles. And 70 millimeter. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I want. But anyhow, okay. So back to Ukrainian cinema. Here's like a really brief, really brief background on, um, this uh, Dovzenko's Film Studios, which was pretty much the the way that Moss Film was producing for Russia, Dovzenko was was producing for Ukraine as far as um, films go. It is named after Oleksandr Petrovich Dovzenko, who was a uh, Ukrainian filmmaker and writer, screenwriter, a director, all of that. He's he's one of the um, He's a big name. You, you might know Eisenstein or Vertov. Um, and that was Dovzenko was part of that. He was making films, uh, you know, silent films in the twenties, uh, up until he died. I think, I mean, he, he made a bunch of movies. Big ones. I haven't seen that many of them. It's funny uh, of all of, of all of these big names of Soviet filmmakers. He's actually one of the ones I've seen the least of, which is a, it's a little embarrassing. I've seen Earth. What about yeah, you? Have Earth you seen is, him? Earth is the big one. I've seen Arsenal. Yeah, I think I've seen Arsenal too, but it's been, it, the, the images looked really familiar, but I couldn't remember the movie. So I might have seen Arsenal. But yeah, I mean, so his thing was that, you know, he would, he is very well, um, known in modern day Russia and Ukraine. He basically, I, like, I feel like the story of Dovzenko and, and, this is my understanding of it is that he just knew how to play nice. He knew how to, uh, you know, appeal directly to Stalin who seemed to kind of like him, but of course was hot and cold on, on, you know, his, his work throughout the years, but he was always working. He managed to become this big name and, and stay it so that when he, when he did die, he got this film studio named after him. And the reason that they started this, uh, film studio was in order to, basically create, uh, as I said, a Moss film in Ukraine and also help define what the, the new Ukrainian national cinema would be, which is kind of funny because, you know, that became this question of they were like, we're going to establish this. And then they were like, well, we don't actually know what that is. <laughs> like, what does that even mean? So what ended up happening, which is kind of what happens whenever suits decide that they're going to start a creative endeavor and then they start hiring directors and of course the you know the filmmakers were going for like visuals and like poetic emotional stories and the film boards were much more interested in a like a a literal bland I mean I'm saying bland this is this is me not that they wouldn't be like make it more bland but like you know they they wanted something that was they wanted like prescriptive movies they wanted something that was like going to tell you how to be ukrainian in a way and like not like a how-to but like here's the hero and here's how he does it and that's the that's the ukrainian way you know what i mean yeah i mean apparently apparently in the 50s there was there were a, a whole series of ukrainian films that were just these s- sort of innocuous 
you know, Soviet realist films, but they were like comedies or, or musicals that were set in traditional Ukrainian villages, like it, you know, set in the Carpathians. Um, so, I mean, there was this idea that they wanted to move beyond those, those types of films to create, uh, you know, art, like a, a, a Ukrainian art form. And, um, that's, I mean, that's where things got tricky because there's clearly like in these films that we watch, there is clearly an, an, you know, a desire to sort of broaden the language of cinema and to, you know, create a, a distinctive Ukrainian voice with these films. But, you know, it turned out that, that that's not what, uh, you know, the suits wanted. And, uh, you know, it's, it's impossible to figure out exactly what it was that they did you know, what they, what they thought they wanted and what was wrong with the stuff that they received. But, you know, these things got at least the ones, most of the films that we are covering today got released in, uh, in the Soviet Union at large. Most were dubbed into Russian, uh, for wider release. The Ukrainian audio track survives on all of them. So that's how we watched all of them. And I, I want to talk really, really quickly about Goskino, which is the 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 state committee for cinematography for the the, the USSR, um, and and about like Soviet censorship and what that really means because they're you know somebody I I recently I think I logged one of these movies on Letterbox and somebody replied like oh Soviet censorship wasn't that bad and it was like. Like it was and it wasn't. <laughs> I mean, you know, ask like Eisenstein if it was that bad or not. You know what I mean? Or if Parajanov. But um my understanding of how Soviet censor- censorship worked was that it wasn't formalized, like say like the Hayes Code, as much as it was like a vibe. <laughs> you submitted a script to get funding, you know, typically to to like, you know, to Moss Film or to Dovzenko Studios. And then it would be, you know, run up the, the flagpole until it landed eventually, you know, by various people in, in, uh, these studios. And then eventually it would land in the, uh, hands of like some local government or, you know, Goskino. And, and it was just, it's basically ca- came down to whether they liked it or they didn't. So it was pretty much just like, it was just a lot of middle management, you know, like these, these films, like, there, there's obviously there were vague guidelines of what they were looking for. Like people knew what would, what would like pass and what wouldn't as far as like broad strokes. Like, you know, films had to show Soviet ideals in a positive light, obviously. Uh, they usually wanted something that was sort of upbeat or, or, and if it wasn't, it had to be about like a great heroic sacrifice. You know, it had to be like, there had to be a positive, you know, something that pointed back to the USSR as being a good place. <laughs> um, and so, you know, in, in funny enough, many of the Soviet films that won awards and recognition abroad pretty much typically ended up maligned in the Soviet union. And it was partially because the language that they were speaking was, was not the, was not, you know, the Soviet way, you know what I mean? Like they were going, they wanted movies that reflected the whole, and these would be movies that would be more, you know, in, in the vein of like, you know, French or, or, uh, you know, Western cinema. And of course that would land better with the West than it did with the Soviets. 
But like you were saying, it would be like, they'd be like, we want, a, you know, part of the reason that they wanted to start this Ukrainian cinema, as you literally just said, was that they wanted to have something that was more artsy, but then, but not that much, you know, <laughs> it was like this, th- there was no definition of what that was. And they kept searching for what a true consensus for Ukrainian national cinema was. And it, it, they, at, by the end of the sixties, it was not, it wasn't achieved, I think, arguably. You know, like there is you and we'll kind of go through these and I think you'll get a sense of what what it really ended up being. But, yeah, I mean, like that's kind of that vagueness and that sort of, uh, again, that middle management wrecking of (laughs) what could have been perpetually, I think, is is unfortunately the the story of the Soviet Union like uh, throughout history. But yeah, well. I guess a good place to start is uh, is with a film that is uh, beloved by uh, Ukrainians now and didn't do anything to challenge the, the Soviet way of uh, of thinking uh, because it's set in the early 20th century. And uh, you want to tell us about Chasing Two Hairs? This is 1961. It's directed by Viktor Ivanov. So as I said, it's kind of, it was hard to find information about most of these um, people who weren't the big names in English. So the stuff that I did find, it was kind of pieced together through Google translated Ukrainian websites or any information I could get from recent, like, you know, semi-recent screenings at festivals throughout the world that I could find in, in English. But anyhow, um, Victor Ivanov, he actually studied at this, um, the Russian State Institute of Cinematography at the same time as Eisenstein did, but then his life got derailed by World War II, uh, where he got sent to the front and ended up, uh, helping, uh, liberate Kiev, right? That's how we say it now. Kiev. After the, after the war, he tried to get a job at Moss Film, but they weren't that interested. And so he ended up, I, he knew Dovzenko somehow, I guess on the, on the, the fact they're both Ukrainian. Sorry. This is how, this is how, like, I, I got information, but I didn't trust all of it because it changed depending on what other Ukrainian website I was translating. But from my understanding, with the help of Dovzenko, uh, he got a job in the Ukraine in the late fifties making movies for the studio. And he made a couple of films uh, to a little fanfare until he landed Chasing Two Hairs, uh, which is apparently a play by my hollow Staritsky. Sorry, this is where my Ukrainian pronunciations are get really, really crummy is when it comes to names. But uh, the movie was uh, so so Chasing Two Hairs was like wildly popular. Um, and Ivanov did not see much financial gain from it, but he ended up, you know, releasing movies throughout the rest of his life. And then he died of a stroke in the eighties. And then there's a statue dedicated to this in Kiev. And that's mm-hmm. the only information I have. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of Kiev in, in the film. It's sort of really, really cool to see it. That city circa 1961, uh, posing yeah. as, uh, 1908 or whenever this, uh, this film is supposed to be set. It is neat. It's kind of a fun movie to start off with because it's this is a comedy. It's a farce. Uh, the the plot is that in Kiev there's uh, this kind of pompous doofus of a barber named Svirid. 
Um, he goes broke and he loses his shop because he's a, d- a doofus. And then he um, finds out that a, a local Mr. He gambles and spends too much money on his clothes, I think. Yeah, he's a doofus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he finds out that a uh, local uh, Mr. Circo uh, is offering a dowry if somebody wants to marry his mean and ugly daughter, Pronya. So Svirid goes to woo her because he needs the money. And uh, he gets like a creditor to help him. You know, look his best. He buys a new suit and, you know, walks down the street. Uh, but he can't help himself because he's a, he's a doofus and he flirts with a much more attractive, but a very poor local girl named Halia, whose mother catches him flirting and then threatens Fearid with violence if he doesn't marry her instead. So from here, things just kind of go haywire. Fearid can't afford to marry Halia, even though he likes her better because she's pretty. And Halia has a boy that she's in love with instead. And her mother is actually this like kind of witchy, more traditional, like, whereas like Circo's family, well, the witchy sister of Circo and Circo's family is a bit more, they're more cosmopolitan wannabe. Like they're really kind of putting on airs and, and trying to, to seem like they're a little more bourgeois, I think. Whereas the, you know, the mother of Halia is very like, you know, traditional, um, you know, like wears a embroidered gown and, and carries a rooster kind of <laughs> like that kind of Ukrainian. And, um, but yeah, so that means that Pranya and Halia are actually cousins and, you know, yada, yada, it's a farce. So it just gets crazier from there. So, you know. Spirit is is now engaged to to these both of these cousins, and he's trying to figure out how to how to make it work. Uh, and it has it has a happy ending for the audience because we get to watch all these jerks kind of squirm around under a microscope. So, yeah, it is. I mean, it, it's definitely the sort of movie that, where a lot gets lost in translation. I mean, the the subtitles make a lot of effort to sort of explain some of the, the name jokes. Like there's a lot of punning and a lot of, you know, it's, um, but there's a lot of puns and a lot of jokes about bad accents. Like, like there's a lot of, you know, like the French mixed in, like, like badly pronounced French. Cause that was like the pre-Soviet vision of bourgeois was always French influenced. So there's like definitely like a bunch of jabs like that. There's a lot of slapstick. Yeah, I mean, all, all the sophisticates, uh, it, the barber, I won't try and say his name, uh, thinks that he's, uh, you know, Western European sophisticate, so he dresses French and, you know, and, and, uh, and his, uh, and the woman he's trying to, you know, get the dowry from also is, you know, has, has illusions of, uh, of being, you know, a proper Western European. She, uh, she's in, uh, finishing school, but gets kicked out because she's, uh, She's like brawling with her. She's, yeah, she's so mean. But, uh, but yeah, so there's a lot of French dropped throughout to, you know, people trying to sound more sophisticated. What's interesting is that the, uh, the parents of, uh, of both of, uh, the barber's, uh, fiancés, they are, they're pretty traditional Ukrainian. I mean, they dress in the traditional clothing. The, uh, the rich parents are, you know, clearly trying to, to show off their wealth, but they're also are not attempting to, to be westernized at all. But, uh, but the, the, uh, the, the younger generation does, you know, the ones who, who, uh, the ones who, who think that they're, uh, better than their parents are, are 
definitely you're dressed in and speak French. And yeah. So rich, rich or poor, there's still like the, the, the older generation still seems to be very traditional, but uh, with the, the, the poorer family, there's uh, you know, they're still more attached to the, the traditions and there's uh you know, there's the, the aunt of the, uh, of the rich daughter uh, it's her name day. And uh, you know, there's a bunch of, dancing and nuns come over to to have some fun at her place and and you know she's mad that her the rest of her family doesn't come for her name day but it's all very like a lot of singing and dancing the whole movie has a lot of singing and dancing but uh, when it's when it's in the aunt's home it's it's very traditional song and dance and everyone's dressed in ukrainian village clothing and uh i think it's interesting that in the middle of the biggest city in ukraine it's uh you know there's still people who are you know, continuing these uh these village traditions these uh you know, ukrainian customs so uh so that's that's really fun to see just the sort of uh the clash between the the traditional and the uh the the new the younger generation who want to be european there's good physical comedy in this and and uh, like you know as you're saying like a lot of the the humor kind of stems from stereotypes that are a little bit too foreign if you don't if you aren't ukrainian and you aren't russian and uh and you know absolutely nothing about it, it you're gonna lose a lot of jokes i think i mean i certainly i, I feel like i knew enough that i knew what i was missing but <laughs> i you know but i have to say that i laughed out loud watching this movie like i totally get like this was a, such a smash hit and i totally get why because it's actually like it's very funny uh, and not so much for its sort of more moralistic plot, which is just basically about how the working class wins out and, you know, that the, the French culture people look like country bumpkins in, in comparison. And, you know, it's very much like sort of typical, if not cliche kind of, uh, you know, Soviet plot. But, um, there's all of these good little amusing physical comedy bits that are always, you know, that you don't need to translate and, and like riffing on like personal ticks or like the way people say things or how they kind of like hold themselves or like riffing on different cultures. There's one scene where, um, Pranya, I love, there is a great thing where she like gets kicked out of finishing school and then like the, it cuts to this like silent film that I didn't know what it was. So maybe did you know where it's like a murderous love triangle and she's just like, she like loves it. I th I thought it was a a film that was created for the film. I mean, it's just so absurdly murderous, ridiculous, I, yeah, <laughs> and ridiculous that I I didn't think it was an actual film. And like you know, that it's just a good it's like a good cut to because here she is getting kicked out for brawling, and then it like cuts to what she likes to do on a date, and it's basically just like watching other women murder people. <laughs> <laughs> I really liked how uh you know when um Spherid's trying to seduce her. You know, he's doing all these little, like he comes to her house and she's trying to, she always wants to be, you know, be posed in the right way before he walks in. And of course that's like totally ridiculous. You know, he tries to like lean in and, and they try to light each other's cigarettes, but they're in like the, the shop that the parents own and they're kind of leaning on these, it's like a bagel shop or something. Mm -hmm. I don't know. And they're leaning on these scales, uh, you know, like to measure food with. So he leans on the scale to light her cigarette, but then she, her, you know, her face goes up because the scale tips up. And then, you know, it's like this sort of, it's like simple, like cartoonish comedy, but it's really, it's, it was really funny. The one that made me laugh out loud was, um, you know, Pranya getting, getting so, you know, flustered about this man coming to seduce her. 
that she tells her maid to to heat the champagne. You know, she wants mm-hmm. to look like she she knows what she's doing. And she's like telling her to like make tea at the same time, but she says, heat the champagne. So the maid, you know, puts the, you know, goes to heat the champagne. She doesn't know any better. And then finally, when he proposes and the whole family celebrates, the maid comes over with this, you know, boiling hot champagne and like pops the cork and sprays everyone (laughs) (laughs) who all just start screaming. (laughs) Like that's, that's my kind of crappy humor. Yeah. I mean, and you kind of have to, invest yourself in the physical comedy because a lot of the linguistic and cultural comedy in this just doesn't register for an American Us, audience. Yeah. Um, when, when the subtitles are explaining the joke, you can see the cleverness of, of, of these puns and, and you can see where the humor is. But by the time, you know, the jokes have been explained to you, you, you know, you're onto the next line of dialogue and, and it's not funny anymore. But, uh, yeah, this is, this is one of those, movies that uh i'm i'm sure i would enjoy a lot more if i was ukrainian but uh it was it is a was an interesting peek into to popular ukrainian cinema in the early 60s and this is also a good example of a movie that was you know censors loved like this was this was ukrainian cinema everyone was happy with this one and this was really kind of like and and you'll see the the change as we go from 1961 till the end of the the decade here that this was kind of close, this was close to what they wanted initially. And, but at the same time, this was also kind of what they were trying to get away from because as you said, Ukrainian cinema had been stuck, stuck in its way and in place and they wanted to, to inject more youthful life to it and really create more, uh, art as opposed to just, you know, something that's amusing. But, um, but this is, this was particularly funny. So. Yeah, and the next film that we're going to talk about, uh, Song of the Forest, directed by Viktor Ivchenko. Also made in 1961, um, we know that because it says it right in the credits. But uh, I also saw a, a 1963 date. Uh, maybe that's when it got released in theaters. But, you know, I don't know. There's so little information about all of this stuff um, that, uh, I mean, I, I can't tell you much about the director at all, uh, Victor Ivchenko, except that his son, Boris, um, who we're, we're going to talk about one of his films later in the episode, um, is got a little bit more recognition, but, you know, Victor had a successful directing career himself. He he also wrote the film that, uh, that we're going to talk about, uh, later that Boris directed. Um, but you know, as, as far as, you know, Victor's background, I, I don't know. <laughs> There's not much out there. I also don't have a sense of how successful this film was, but I do know that it was based on a, beloved story or play actually uh by uh Lesia Ukrenka. It's a it's a fairy tale and uh it's been remade several times. There's an eighties version that's directed by Yuri Ilyenko, you know, one of the one of the big Ukrainian directors that we're not talking about tonight. Um but uh you know it's a story that people are familiar with and um so you do like you're sort of at the beginning of this film, you're, you're sort of placed in the middle of this, um, 
you know, forest world where there are all these forest creatures and supernatural creatures. And it's a little hard to distinguish who's who and what's what. But uh, most people would be familiar enough with the story to be able to orient themselves um, instantly. It starts with this uh, forest fairy who just looks like a regular girl, except she's got uh, some magical powers and uh, she she hasn't really interacted with humans at all. Um, Mavka is her name. And, uh, she stumbles upon this, uh, this old man and his nephew, Lukash and Uncle Lev, who are, um, in the forest sort of, um, scouting out a location for a, for a house to build. Uh, they want to move to this area that's, that's by the river. Uh, I don't know if it's the, the Desna. It's, uh, you know, a, a a forest by a river, and uh, the uncle is very respectful of the the supernatural creatures who inhabit the woods, and and is very reverent of of this place, and you know wants to build his house here, but doesn't want to chop down too many trees or or do anything to anger the the, the people of the forest. Lukash, the you know, young man, is uh, you know a little little bit oblivious. He's uh, he's from the city, I guess, and he doesn't really know about any of this stuff but uh he's he's playing a a reed flute and uh and Mavka the 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 wood fairy hears it and uh and has never heard anything so beautiful and and uh, falls in love with Lukash and and wants to you know, is a little bored of her uh immortal life in the woods just hanging out with uh with other fairies and uh mermaids and and things and uh wants to wants to give up her 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 life as an immortal and uh and mate with with this human and uh you know she's beautiful and Lukash instantly falls in love with her and uh your typical setup it's it's not you know unlike some of the things we saw in the Alexander Rue movies that we discussed uh, last year but the tone is totally different. There's nothing very goofy about this. You've got some similar like magical effects and you've got, you know, some of the makeup effects are, are pretty similar to, you know, the creatures that in, in the, uh, in the Alexander Rue movies. But, uh, yeah, there's the, the tone of the, this film is, is, it's romantic, but also pretty melancholy. There's not much for kids to latch onto in this fairy tale. It's more more a fairy tale for for young uh, for young lovers, which we find out at the end is uh, you know, this. We we've been hearing this tale that these two young lovers by the river have been uh, been reading to each other, and uh, Mavka and Lukash are in love, and and Mavka comes to live with uh, with Lukash at his uh, at his house, but Lukash's mother thinks that she's useless because she doesn't want to chop down the. The wheat because it's you know it's a living thing and uh, you know just thinks that Lukash needs a uh, a real Ukrainian wife. She she brings uh, Kalina, this very hardy, rustic Ukrainian woman who can chop wheat like nobody's business, and uh, yeah. sort of the, the the perfect wife for Lukash. And uh, you know Lukash is you know resists her at first because he's in love with Mavka, but. Uh, you know, eventually, and, uh, we're, we're to assume it's after, uh, Lukash and Mavka have sort of consummated their love, but of course we don't see that Lukash sort of tosses her aside and, and ends up marrying, uh, Kalina and, uh, Mavka is so mad that she turns Lukash into a werewolf. I don't need to go into all the details, but this film, it does, it doesn't end happily for the two young lovers the moral of the story is be nice to nature 
be nice to nature and don't don't disrespect it. Yeah, in that regard, I I was sort of surprised that this is such a beloved fairy tale that gets remade. More. I mean, I guess because it's fantasy, you have a little more leeway to to kind of do what you want. But to me, the message here, you know, was basically that like being industrious is not everything and that you got to respect the damn environment, <laughs> which, you know, you would think would be not totally pro-Soviet, but you know, who knows? I mean, I guess there is a degree of like, love your land and the land will give back kind of thing and don't be greedy. I think that that is kind of probably what they thought it was going for, but I don't know. Yeah, it is. It is true. I mean, the Kalina is such an industrious Soviet that uh, the fact that she's kind of the antagonist of the film, like she and Lukasha's mother are both pretty, pretty awful people. And they're really like once, once Lukash gets turned into a wolf, they're, they're at each other's throats and they're, you know. <laughs> yeah, that was like really Alexander. We're like the, 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 the angry mother-in-law, like nagging and the, the mother who resents her children kind of like they, they definitely, they dissolve. Yeah. I guess that's, yeah. When you're in the, when you're in the realm of fairy tales, the, the censors have, uh, give you, give you a little more leeway because uh there is there there are definitely ways to analyze this film that are pretty anti-soviet but it's an old favorite tale so kind of like uh, how alexander rue was able to make a version of cinderella which is like the ultimate capitalist fairy tale um you know if something's old enough i guess you can you can get away with it in, in yeah. soviet cinema this was such a beautiful looking movie though. I think that's really the best part of this. Like it has those kind of like hazy, misty sets. It reminded me of, um, Ridley Scott. And the colors were clearly like if you could, if we could have seen them in the original print, I'm sure they were gorgeous because it, it's doing so much with color. But what would, what we ended up with is, is, you know, copy of a copy of a copy where all the colors are really muted and but even you know despite that it still was such a beautiful looking film and uh you know yeah the, and the haziness just really added to the whole magical atmosphere of it like you just loved being in the woods and and seeing you know the uh you know there are just all sorts of you know creatures running around that uh that don't have seem to have much effect on the plot but it's uh you know it's just creating this really gorgeous fairy tale world yeah with like a real forest you know there's never um there, there's a bit of that kind of like the underwater world that we get to see that's definitely a set but otherwise they're, they're really just shooting in a, a forest somewhere and it and it's cool because they do get it to really look like an enchanted forest even though i would say that the like you know the trees are very thin and like you know what i mean like it looks like a it looks like a normal field but the way that it's shot and the way that they sort of even Mavka, as this sort of like nature fairy princess, her outfits are really kind of bland. Like they're very, um, you know, just sort of a simple, almost like linen dress kind of, you know, or this kind of like, you know, gauze fabric. Like it's, it's not that she doesn't look that like magical and mystical. Like she could be wearing that shirt, that, that dress and walk down the street today and you wouldn't like look twice. Mm -hmm. You know, but the way that it's shot and the way that, you know, she appears and the way that, uh, just everything is, is working together. The Bisson scene of this, uh, film is really, it's really, really great. And even there's like scenes where, um, 
there's this like fire spirit that that has a crush in her that keeps trying to seduce her mm-hmm. and uh you know and the film will like take them with like back projection and the camera will spin around them as you get this sort of back this background uh you know that's also spinning and so it gets this effect as if they're flying through the air and and yeah, and moving and it's like the forest it's yeah and it's i mean it's clearly fake but it also it works like so well yeah. it really just it, it manages to to really uh you know it's just very visually exciting and like fun this this movie yeah i mean for for a bummer of a film it's uh it's it's totally captivating and uh you know, you, I just, I just wanted to spend more time in this world. It's, uh, it's a shame it's not better known, more beloved. And, you know, maybe somebody would do a, make a nice restoration of it and could see it the way it was meant to be seen. Yeah. This one definitely, I mean, I kind of feel like all these films need a restoration, but. <laughs> well, a couple of them we did watch the restored versions, but they yeah. still had kind of lousy subtitles. But yeah, this this was really beautiful, and it reminded me also very much of of Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors, uh, which we're not talking about today. But um, if you know anything about Ukrainian cinema, that that should hopefully be a a good reason to go go seek this one out. Yeah. And, but next we've got a film written by uh, the namesake of the, of the uh, the studio in Kiev that uh, that produced it. You're going to talk about the Enchanted Desna. Yeah, so the Enchanted Desna is uh similarly kind of dreamlike and and almost sort of magical, but um is is actually a pretty grounded story here. It's directed by Yulia Solnitseva, who was the wife of Alexander Dovzenko, and this is based on Dovzenko's Ukrainian trilogy which I believe was a series of books that he actually turned into silent films and then was um, gearing up to redo them uh, in the late fifties when he then uh, died uh, pretty, I think in his fifties, in his fifties, I think, or maybe 60 or something, he was young. And um, so these were scripts that he had never produced uh and it was about he was about to start shooting and everything kind of fell into Yulia's lap because she you know wanted to honor uh his wishes and she actually uh herself had been a silent film actress and worked closely with him uh as you know on his movies so she was like you know co-directing or or at least assisting i was really excited when i found out that she was Elida Queen of Mars which I don't know if you're familiar with that film, but, uh, I'm not, but it did sound great. Yeah. I mean, just, just look up her costume in that film and that's, it's enough to make you want to see it. But yeah, she was, she was a huge star and became a prominent, successful director. Yeah. And again, as you said, he, she went on from here to, to continue to make movies throughout the rest of her life. Uh, so that's, that's pretty cool. This was, uh, of course, being the, the studio's namesake, I, this was very well received, I believe. And the film is, is basically, it's a, it weaves in and out through multiple timelines of the life of a Ukrainian man who is, who is based on 
Dovzenko himself and on his own childhood. In turn, you know, as, as they go, as the movie goes in and out through his life, it's kind of also a stand in for Ukraine on whole. So it, it stars, you know, the writer is what his name, he doesn't ever have a name, uh, who's now a soldier on a battlefield in, in World War II. He's trying to go, go back to liberate Ukraine. And, uh, he's reminiscing about his childhood and the landscape of his youth. So then we get these flashbacks where he is, you know, like a very young child lounging in, in farmland and in fields, which of course is just like completely covered in like ripe uh, vegetables and fruit and flowers, sunflowers everywhere. And, uh, you know, it kind of goes through all everyone in his family and talks about, you know, his grandmother who is always cursing and his, grandfather was always kind of lounging and you know his father who he always thought so so highly of and how his father came here and and sort of just weaving in and out of his life and then sometimes he kind of he's kind of an unreliable narrator sometimes he kind of goes into fantasy and then stops himself and then we cut back to where he is today uh and then some and then even further is that it even further is that it then goes into the future so we actually get to see Ukraine being developed, you know, today in 1964 and all of these like massive construction vehicles and, and, you know, crazy projects that, you know, like as, as he walks along and this is where he is now. And so, yeah, it's, it's, this, I, it's like, it's hard to describe just because it doesn't have much of a, it's not very linear and it also doesn't really matter because it's really, this is totally a movie about talk about the poetry of Ukrainian cinema. That's exactly what this is. This is like a poem of a movie. Uh, and I, I, I'm not even trying to be pretentious when I say that, like this movie feels like a poem. It, it weaves in such a, a dreamlike way. Well, and, the, and it's constantly narrated by the writer and it's, his language is very flowery and, and poetic. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a memory piece and it's not, uh, trying to tell any kind of straightforward narrative other than like, here's some things I remember, you know, that he, they've, they've crossed the border into U- Ukraine and, uh, he, he, they end up in the village where he grew up and it's, it's been abandoned. Like it, uh, and he's sort of remembering when it, the village burned down and you know, he remembers when there was a, a big flood there and he remembers, you know, he remembers this and that, but he, yeah, like you said, there are also you know, fantasy elements. Like there's uh, you know, a couple horses on the, um, on the banks of a, uh, up the river having a conversation and uh, yeah. In, in Ukrainian, in they're Ukrainian, speaking. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, like it's just, and it just dwells on beautiful composed images for long periods of time. Not, you know, not a whole lot of forward momentum here. It's just uh, a celebration of Dovchenko's hometown. Yeah. I mean, this film is, it's a love letter to, to childhood and to, you know, writers and artists and, and definitely to Ukraine. I like, I wish the copy that we watched had been more stunning. This actually played in 70 millimeter like a couple years ago. And I remember that I, I had made a note of it and then I, I somehow missed it. And I'm so I'm kicking myself now because having watched it, I'm like, I would love to see this, like a great copy of this, a clean copy of this. And big, yeah, I but, mean, um, it, it wasn't a terrible transfer, but it really, like you could tell that, that seeing this on a big screen would be incredible. Yeah. 
And it, I just love that there's so much visual beauty and so much emphasis on nature in this movie. This is another one. I'm kind of curious. You know, I mean, on, on one hand, I can see why this is a celebrated, you know, Ukrainian movie that, uh, you know, that, that Soviet censors would have been happy with because it's about, you know, this idea of, you know, preserving and working hard and that, you know, he comes from farmland and, and, you know, made something of himself, but he will never, you know, escape. He's, he's never, even though he's an artist, he's not too good for his own homeland. And, you know, this sort of, everything's coming back to, to homeland and this idea of, of returning or, or wanting to return or your heart being left, you know, in a certain place in the land. So I can totally get that. But I also feel like, and especially in the end, they really bash you over the head with like nationalism, mm-hmm. uh, in the, at least in the monologue, you know, but, I, I kind of reminded me of Song of the Forest in that sense that I felt like it, there was so much, it was more focused on nature and like the beauty of nature, how, how miserable war is and this sort of a, an idealistic beauty. And I felt like there was something that was unreal about its love and that it, you know, the heart wasn't with the farmland as much as it was with a, a loss of innocence you know, mm-hmm. or like a sort of just an appreciation of the fact that time, time marches on and that no matter what we're accomplishing today, it's going to be someone's fond memory soon enough. Like even all the scenes, all the industrial scenes, they're shot in the same sort of way that she shoots nature. I mean, like it's this very like symmetrical, interesting uh, shots of of it never looks boring it like looks just as vibrant and intriguing but but like in juxtaposition with those shot those beautiful shots of nature in the beginning that like seem like i like how i don't know how they found flowers that were that perfect (laughs) you know what i mean like it was so perfect and like lush and like beautiful looking that there's just no comparison you can't be like and now here we are it's like Yeah, I I kind of lost patience with this movie because it just spends so much time you know, glorifying childhood and and you know, composing these these images that you know the work in in Earth work in silent cinema like I uh, only have so much patience for for Soviet silent film too but uh, this film just it's sort of um, you know it sacrifices any kind of commentary or story or 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 reason when it stops to show us beautiful things like showing these reapers in 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 the wheat that are all lined up perfectly or these boys sitting on this fence that are all like you know there's just this perfect composition yeah i mean and i think it's a fault of mine too like i'm definitely a, a more narrative oriented person so i i feel like it's this is my failing and not the films that i that I lost patience with it. Why but... do you hate childhood, Bart? <laughs> <laughs> and childhood sucks. But yeah, like I, uh, I don't, I don't often get sleepy during movies, but this one, uh, is, uh, this one tested my, uh, my wakefulness. That's and... interesting. I kind of like, I, I was so intrigued by the, um, the way that this was laid out that even when it, there are lulls, which there are, I mean, the whole, there's like a scene where, the entire village gets flooded and they're just sort of picking people up and it kind of is poking fun at priests and, and, and it gets, you know, it's like, it's, it's intriguing briefly and then kind of goes on too long. Like I have a good amount of these scenes go on a little bit too long, I guess, but 
Uh, it's at just, least something's it's, happening during the flood. Like then a lot of a lot of this movie, there's just nothing happening. Just, just see the stuff pictures. where nothing's happening was the best part for me. Like that's when it, it kind of reminded me of like Yvonne's childhood, even though uh, that one is that's much darker and also the uh, you know the the Soviet censors hated Yvonne's childhood, but um, there's a, this gentleness about it uh, that I really, I really liked. Even when it's taught, even when it's doing war, it's a very gentle film and kind of sidesteps the war in a way. Like, you know, it talks about like, it's about more like the, the aftermath, the liberation and not so much about any sort of glory of war. It's really, you know, he's still, a, he's a writer and that's kind of what he's, coming back to and and so i i don't know i i but also you know i guess like i liked i like childhood huh? yeah. there's <laughs> like a, i enjoyed there- this kind of like nostalgic reminiscing and and this and i also enjoyed how this this acknowledges that a lot of this is nostalgia and that you know it wasn't actually like this but this is how you know he remembers it and and of course this is how he remembers it when he's staring down at, at a like you know a bombed out burned down ground that is like, you know, just brown and, and horrible. And, you know, and, and here he is flooded by these memories of the, the, you know, like the beautiful little lake he used to, you know, sit next to and pull apples off a tree, you know, like these kind of things. So like, I, I like that it kind of acknowledges the, the falseness that it's, um, you know, kind of basking in. Yeah. Yeah. The visual contrasts are, are definitely, they're, they're amazing, but it does. Yeah. Just, falls into this sort of sickly sentimental view of childhood too much for me. Like there's, you know, just too much of the writer as a child prancing through fields in slow motion and, you know, shaking apples from trees. But apparently the apples are significant somehow to, to Dovchenko. He like, there's a, an orchard near Dovchenko studios that he planted himself. And yeah, I mean, it's all, it's all very personal. And I think, your investment in it definitely will, you know, depends on whether you care about Dovchenko as a person or, you know, care about his work or not. No, I thought, I thought this was pretty universal, but I agree it is. It, this is completely personal, uh, about his experience. And yet, you know, there's things like he describes, like, you know, grandpa looked like a god and he smelled like earth. And like you sort of see this grandfather who's, you know, he, he has that kind of like Roman nose and, and a big beard, you know, like this kind of like what a child would presume, like, oh, he looks like God or he's so handsome. And you're like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, there's 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 a bit of eye rolling in this movie. Yeah. I mean, like there, I think it, it it gets sentimental uh in parts, but I think the stuff that you found sentimental, I thought was actually a little more grounded in a way like it, it's very much acknowledging that this is this is sentimental and the stuff that i i was rolling my eyes at is is more towards the end when it gets more into like the glory of the of the soviet <laughs> you know industrial you know whatever like you know that that's the kind of stuff that's that's silly but i also uh, there's um you know i i just think it's an ode the whole thing is an ode to imagination which i think that is again is is more about being an artist than it is about ukraine even or or about you know, even his childhood in a way. And, and that, that's what I liked about it. But anyhow. <laughs> yeah. It's definitely, if, if you can see this in 70 millimeter in a theater, I absolutely recommend it, even though I had to, you know, tried my patience a little. It's, uh, visually glorious. So, so check it out. The one quote I wrote down from this movie is people need artists to show the beauty of life. 
maybe a bit obvious of a, of a line, but, uh, I appreciated it. And, um, Bart <laughs> doesn't agree with it. Yeah. A little, a little too poetic for my taste. But, uh, so that was 1964. And, uh, at, at this point, we're, um, in the middle of the, the Soviet thaw and, uh, some of the, some of the masterpieces of Ukrainian cinema started to come out in 1965, both, uh, Shadows, uh, Parajanov's Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors and Yuri Ilyenko's, so uh, Well for the Thirsty came out. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about those in an episode soon, but, uh, they were kind of a crucial step in, in sort of getting us to, uh, to what happened in the, in the second half of the, the sixties, uh, in Ukraine. But I'm going to jump to 1968 and talk about, uh, Leonid Osika's The Stone Cross. It's based on a couple of stories written by uh, Vasil Stefanik, who's a, uh, a well-known Ukrainian writer. I don't know him, but, uh, he's, <laughs> he, he's, he's, never uh, heard of him. <laughs> he's available in translation, so you can, you can check out his work. Um, and this is a very simple story about, um, Ivan, a Carpathian villager who, uh, you know, has lived his whole life dragging dirt up a mountain in a sack. <laughs> it's so true though. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, barely eking out, uh, a living, barely surviving this, uh, you know, this job. I don't even know what he's trying to accomplish really doing this. All in but dirt. It, it's, it's grueling work. It's old man with a huge sack full of, full of heavy dirt and climbing, climbing a, a mountain. Starving donkey. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, it, it spends a, a long time just showing you showing you his struggles it's a black and white film the last the last couple we talked about were color films but this is gorgeous black and white and it's one that was recently restored so we actually it looked really nice uh and uh but but the subtitles left something to be desired unfortunately but this is this is one of the films i was talking about where it doesn't matter that much because so much of this movie is visual and not uh not verbal Ivan is about to take his family, his two adult sons. So one of them is married with a, with a wife and, and young child and his wife to Canada to try and make a better life for themselves. But, uh, he's, he's sort of having his, you know, his regrets leaving everything he's ever known behind, even though it's a, it's a miserable existence. Yeah. The, the film is, is basically him, him dealing with, uh, you know, leaving, leaving the only place he's ever known for, for unknown parts. The stone cross refers to a, uh, grave marker that he makes for himself or for his way of life or, or something on the, on the side of this mountain that he spent his life dragging dirt up. The movie sort of early on, the middle section of this film is, uh, has to do with this thief that, uh, Ivan catches, um, and wounds with his, uh, pitchfork and, uh, so there's a, there's a big section in the middle of this film where 
Ivan brings in a couple of the the village officials and uh and they have to decide what to do with this thief like he's you know if he's if he's stealing he's uh you know they're the the law of the land is that he's uh he should be condemned to death but uh but Ivan feels a little guilty about having to kill this guy so there's a he also threatens to beat his wife for saying not to beat him so he's yeah <laughs> he's in between yeah, yeah, he, he's leaving it to the officials to do the dirty work, but he really does feel guilty. And so the long section of this film is Yvonne and the officials getting the, the thief drunk so that he can accept his, uh, his, his death graciously or something. But, but yeah, so there, you know, you get a lot, uh, you, you get this sort of, you, you get some insight into Ukrainian village drinking customs. <laughs> It's a slow-paced film that's very you know, n- not a lot happens but I still it's it's gorgeous to look at and you really like learn about these people's way of life. And then finally the last section is, of this film is a going away party for the family and uh Ivan is sort of going around with his his bottle of whatever liquor it is they're drinking and and pouring glasses for everybody and making these speeches that people are only half listening to and it's it's sort of you know clearly he's the one who's who's most emotional about this departure but you know the whole town is there and a and a and a group of blind musicians have been brought in for for the party and there's a lot of really beautiful long takes it uh you know, huge crowds of people and, uh, and that like traditional Ukrainian music that makes me it, like, I, 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 the first time I heard that my brain didn't know how to like comprehend it. It's just it's so great. wild to me. It sounds like a, like a warming up Yiddish orchestra playing country speed metal on meth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it is, it's such fast music and you really, you, you, it's you wild. Dance, it's like but... almost atonal, but it isn't. And, uh, and it's, it really sort of contrasts with this long scene of this farewell party because it's, you know, everybody's sort of melancholy. Nobody's really enjoying themselves, but this, this Ukrainian folk music that's playing is very like up tempo and, and, you know, there's a bit of dancing, I guess, but, you know, mostly it's just, you know, a real, a real contrast to what's happening in the scene. Yeah, well, it's like there's, there's, there's no smiles because no one in this land has ever smiled their whole life. Did you, did you have any information on how this was received? I know it's beloved now. It's considered to be like one of the greatest Ukrainian films. Um, I don't have information on how it was received at the time though. I'd be really curious because I feel like this was one of those movies that no, I mean, like (laughs) it, it, Indeed, you know, if the assignment was Ukrainian national cinema, I would say that it covers that base, but in a positive way, (laughs) not really. I mean, like, it's basically, as you said, like a miserable man being miserable in a, in a land of misery. It's like the most, you know, and, and that's what's so cool about this, that this hyper focus on this one man just having mixed emotions about leaving town. You know, and leaving the the only life he's ever known, even though it's just horrendous. <laughs> mm-hmm. But you know, it's consistent, and you know, and it's his life, and it's his dirt, you know, mountain, and and you know, that's that's what he's really attached to. And you almost get the sense that he's he's jealous of the thief because the thief gets to die on this land and he doesn't. You know, like it, it's not. It, it's just very. You know, it's, it's the whole film feels as barren as the landscape. 
and and we're definitely in in high art cinema here like this. yeah this is it it actually reminds me of uh you know hungarian cinema you know of the time like miklos uh yeah y- y- uh yank so especially that farewell scene where you've got you know just h- hundreds of people in the in this like camera that's roaming around uh the party and you know bellatar just the misery of this of this guy you know doing this repetitive grueling task over and over so yeah i mean i don't think it got much attention outside of the ussr even though it seems like it's uh you know it's attempting to to be an art film on a uh on a worldwide scale um but uh it's Definitely, uh, it's highly regarded in Ukraine now. Despite its hyper focus, it definitely is not merely about a man, you know, trying it leaving leaving Ukraine. It's like it's a very honest film. I think you know, it's not afraid to show just how brutal this guy's life is, how horrible all those people. I mean, like everyone in this town is like a criminal, <laughs> like a racist, like horrible creep that's always just trying to like drunkenly murder each other. And, you know, nobody has anything nice to say to each other. And, and you know, they, they clearly don't know how to, how to be happy. You know, it's like, and, and, you know, the, in, in a way, you know, in, in through the main character, you kind of see the beauty in it for what it is, you know, again, just accepting, you know, this, this is, this is all I've ever known and this is my life. And, you know, and, and I, there is like, there is something beautiful about that. (laughs) There is like a weird poetry to this. Yeah. I, uh, it definitely held me in a way that, uh, enchanted Desna did not. It's, uh, you know, they're both like, it was the misery part. (laughs) The misery. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't want, I want happy children. I want miserable old men, (laughs) but it's, uh, you know, they're just such highly, they're both such highly visual films and it's, uh, you know, just asking you to bask in, in the, you know, the landscape, you know, what, what Ukraine looks like, what, what people in Ukrainian villages from uh you know half a century ago looked like what uh the carpathian mountains look like and uh but this has enough like there's enough of a unified story that is trying to tell like a, a sort of i don't know I, it's just me and, and and narrative like there doesn't have to be much of a story but you know give me give me a story i guess i was awfully impressed with this film it's it's another one that just you know needs needs more attention and there's a there's a nice restored version out there for people to see so check it out and I don't know much about the director Leonid Osika except that he's one of the better known Ukrainian directors of the 60s but yeah there's there's not not a whole lot of information out there on him in English <laughs> in English right well the next film uh didn't even make it to the light of day until the late 80s, which is Conscience. And this was made in 1968. Uh co-written and directed by uh, Vladimir uh, Denisenko. 
And here's an example of the sort of film that never would have been accepted by censors and was in fact lost uh, and never released uh, until the 1980s. And what the only thing I can get about Denisenko and who he was is that he, uh, you know, taught at the State Institute of Theater Arts in Kiev. In Kiev, he was basically like he was teaching a class on how to make movies. It was like an acting and directing workshop, and the result was this movie. And that is even funnier. And when you think about the fact that this is like a deeply, deeply depressing, like World War II drama about the Nazi occupation of Ukraine and basically all of them just killing Ukrainians, all the Germans and killing Ukrainians and enslaving them. Like, like it is like Holocaust movie levels of depressing. Yeah. This is a, this is a horror film. It's really just. It's really, I mean, like, and we'll talk about it, but I just want to say, like... Brutal as hell. Yeah. I'm I'm sure you're going to compare it to Come and See, and it's that level of of horror, of war horror. Like, 100%. (laughs) (laughs) Which, again, it's like, what was this, like, an hour long? It's, like, barely, I mean, it's a wild, wild movie, considering this was just, like, a... Let's make this for fun. <laughs> um, but, uh, so again, there's really not much about this in English, uh, though there's a bit more because it came out in the eighties and had a lot more fanfare. And again, now is, is, you know, much more well known, at least as, uh, you know, versus in the sixties where it was never seen. Um, I did find, uh, at the Torino Film Festival on their website from a couple of years ago, uh, they have a story about how this movie was found and they say that the Ukrainian filmmakers union in the 1980s, Ukrainian filmmakers union got the only copy of the film from Denisenko's relatives in 1986. Then they disappeared it. And then the relatives had to go search for it for years and they started getting courts involved. And then suddenly quote, a van showed up at the studio and unidentified people threw to the ground two boxes, which turned out to be the greatly damaged copy of Denisenko's film. <laughs> okay. So, you know, in a weird way, like, you know, even though this, I don't, they never even submitted this. I, my understanding is that this was never really seen outside of, you know, the class because there's no way in hell that this would have ever passed. It's way too depressing. It's not even that it, it's like, you know, insulting to the, to the Soviets is that it's just so depressing and so uh, violent, quite frankly, even though it's not, it's not come and see levels of on-screen violence, but it's just so, you know, it's, it's, it's bleak and explicit with, with uh, its deaths uh, on screen and for a black and white movie too, that, you know, I, I, they didn't even bother trying to submit this. And yet once, even after the fall of the Soviet Union, someone was trying to you know destroy all the copies so who knows who knows strange story soviets aren't portrayed negatively in this film but the villagers are constantly waiting for the soviets to show up to save them from these nazis and you know they're they're people collaborating with the nazis because what else are you going to do and uh there's well you're going to tell the the plot line but uh yeah i mean the plot is just basically um you know it's following this village that is has been uh you know is under nazi occupation and one ukrainian shoots a uh, an officer in an apple orchard and 
then the the soldiers are going around trying to figure out who did it. So, um, you know, they're they're rounding everybody up and they're trying to get everyone to to, you know, say, oh, I saw, uh, you know, to to tell on on who might have done it. The thing is, of course, that nobody knows because it happened in the middle of a field like, you know, it wasn't anyone. No one was around. Well, they have a bike. They know the the two guys who did this ab- abandoned their bike. So they're the Nazis are saying, whose bike is this? So you have a sense that maybe they, the villagers do know who's responsible, but nobody's saying anything. Some of them do because, because they get, they do. So basically these two men, uh, they, they get stopped by cops on the road and they have to then, they get into a big fight with cops then. And, and, uh, I think they kill someone else and, and now they're really on the run. So, uh, they do get hidden by, uh, locals who some are, are, um, sympathetic to the plight here because they get it, but it, it's the kind of movie where, I mean, I, I kind of, I'm going to spoil it because <laughs> it's, it's, you can't, you can't really find it, but also I don't think that this spoils anything, but it's just basically that, you know, the Nazis start lining up and rounding up entire villages and then shooting people when they're not getting the answers that they want to hear. Basically this, this whole film is this like, struggle between action and inaction when the consequences of both are like completely out of your control, you know, whether or not is these, you're the boys that, you know, shoot these officers. It means that you get, you know, you're, you're going to die. And also everyone else is going to die. If you give up the boys, you're going to die. And, or if you don't give them up, everyone's going to die. Anyhow. I mean, like, you know, it's just sort of the, this, in the indifference of, of war and that war is a sort of like a force as opposed to just like bad guys coming, you know, and, and that, and that idea of war being almost like nature because they, they keep juxtaposing scenes of, of indifferent scenes of, of nature right next to this, you know, the unscrupulous choices of man, even that visual is so violent. You sort of see like here, here is like the world and here is the choices that we make. Yeah. I mean, it's the film opens with Nazis shooting people in the head and tossing them into a mass grave. Like, you know what you're getting into with this film. So it's no, yeah, I mean, you're definitely not spoiling anything by talking about how, how many people do end up dying. It's a little, it's, it's also a little vague, like what the, what the reasoning for the shooting is and, like that's it's suggested that it was kind of an accident or it was a it was a if I don't shoot this guy I'll die sort of thing but it's um yeah it's it's sort of this this guy I mean there are two of them but one of them is is injured so badly and that he can't uh, he's he's no longer does he die or he's he's in, incapacitated anyway and it's it's this one guy who actually did the shooting that uh, you know he has to choose whether to turn himself in and potentially save the villagers knowing that he'll he'll die if he turns himself in and so yeah i mean it is just sort of like the nazis are not they are just sort of like this unstoppable force like the this the, you know the power of of evil like you don't get any you know none of them are developed at all you don't know like other than just, you know, being unscrupulous and, you know, being willing, you know, they're willing to kill everybody because one of their officers was shot. Like, it's not, yeah, it's not specifically about Nazis. It's just about, you know, being powerless against this, this sort of unstoppable, unscrupulous force. And uh, it's just so oppressively existential, this film. It, it's such a, you know, looming, creeping 
black hole pit of misery. Yeah. Uh, which is what's so amazing. I mean, and, it, and it's really beautiful considering how low budget it is and it's clear how low budget it is. You know, the acting isn't really anything to comment on, funny enough, considering it's an acting workshop. Everyone's very stoic and, uh, in, in a way it comes across as this real stylistic choice, whether or not even that was on purpose, knowing that this is all, you know, students is kind of interesting. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's almost like a silent film. It, it, it never something I would have expected out of 68. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in terms of the acting, it is kind of, Brissonian. It's just these, you know, these people, you know, these, these blank expressions on everybody's face and there's not much acting to speak of. They're just, you know, people having to make difficult decisions. And, uh, it's, uh, it's also like, it's the most new wave feeling of any of these yeah. films, like French new wave, like they're when it's, uh, you know, these two guys on the bicycle and, and this, uh, officer with a rifle and, and it's, it's become sort of an us or, or them sort of, sort of thing there's this like quick cutting like between the, the their revolver and his rifle and like back and forth and very like jarring quick cuts that that sort of take you out of the the film in a, in a very new wave sort of way and it's also very like the low budget feels new wave and it's 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 high it's super high contrast like there's no there there are no grays in the film like everything is black and white and nothing in between and I, it, it works for the film. I don't know if some of that has to do with this transfer that we watched or if it was, you know, intentionally shot, you know, or printed in, in high contrast like that. But it, it works for, for the film and also gives it this this sort of new wave feel. Yeah, well, I mean, considering that story about it then showing up damaged, I'm, I'm guessing that the information was lost at some point. But um, but yeah, the other thing is the soundtrack. Which made me think of the black hole in 2001. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, really ominous music for the whole thing, like relentlessly ominous orchestral music. Basically, like if you can find this movie, you have to watch. Like this was like amazing. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's... I mean, it's, it's so depressing, but it really is like come and see. I actually think I like this more than come and see. Which, you know, is a notoriously unflinchingly violent, putting you in the shoes of someone experiencing living through occupied Belarus. Like this forces you to, to feel all of the anger and the anguish and the, and the terror of living in occupied Ukraine. Yeah. It's, uh, it's really, it was an unexpected, I, going into this knowing the story, I, I, I still just was not expecting how brutal this film was going to be i was you know i can't say that i enjoyed watching the film i was incredibly impressed by it but it's you know it's a wrenching experience to watch this thing and yeah not what you expect from a from a film from 1968 from anywhere in the world in 1968 the final film we're going to talk about is uh boris ifchenko's anichka Boris Ivchenko is the son of Victor Ivchenko, the director of Song of the Forest. And this is the one that Victor, he wrote this film and Boris directed it. I think uh, Boris went on to have a uh, 
a more prominent career or at least a career that that we we know more about <laughs> he seems to have have directed a, a number of films that are uh that are pretty notable but other than than being a uh you know the son of a of a famous Ukrainian director and uh, going to to the Kiev, Kiev film school he uh you know I don't I don't have much that I uh, I can tell you about Borov Ivchenko but uh this this film Anichka is uh I mean I I'd, I'd say it's probably the most straightforward melodrama like you know standard film story wise of any of the things that we watched but I loved it. I mean it's it's really a uh, a good watch. There's there's nothing lost in translation in this film even though it deals with this Ukrainian village during World War II and um you know the people's lifestyles and and customs are very different than than what we know in America but it's it's dealt with in such a you know universal way that there there's no confusion about what's going on or the you know the the morals that people in this village are you know have to have to live by and and uh, I mean there's a certain amount of confusion trying to sort out the various you know factions in this town so it's set in World War 2 and 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 like conscience it's a small village that uh where the nazis have have come and uh they're you know they're they've created a camp there they're they're in charge and there there's certain you know villagers who have have joined up at the you know with the nazi police force and are, are uh well it's a hutzel village and yeah the, the either that they sort of are so nationalistic that they are siding with the Nazis because it means that they're not part of the Soviets or they're Soviet separatists who are rebelling against the Nazis. Right. Or you are Anichka's father who doesn't want to take sides at all. He just wants to keep living his regular old village life, doing the, the same work he's always done all along. And, uh, you know, he's, he doesn't want, uh, he's pretty cozy with the Nazis, but n- well, no, he doesn't, he doesn't like anybody. That's sort of his, <laughs> his thing. Yeah. Like he doesn't want to be involved at all. He's pissed off because the, uh, the Nazis have, uh, have drafted to uh two of his sons into into their police force and uh he doesn't want to lose and into their army like he has to he has to fight they have to fight for the nazis uh and he he's you know not uh he's not particularly for or against the nazi cause but he he's upset that he's losing his family to this war and and uh one of the the Nazi officers who happens to be a woman is saying, Oh, we've got, we've got big plans for your daughter, Anichka. So, uh, he's really like, you know, he locks her up in, in the, uh, in the yard and, and really just doing everything he can. So he doesn't, uh, lose her. But, uh, one day when she's out gathering, I don't know, mushrooms or something, she, uh, stumbles on this, uh, this rebel, the separatist, this, uh, person from a from a nearby village who is fighting against the nazis and uh you know she doesn't she knows that her father hates these guys as much as he hates the nazis and and knows that she shouldn't be you know doesn't really know how she's supposed to feel about the soviets um she even asks her father at some point we 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 don't like the soviets right And, and he says no we don't we don't like anybody um but he, she ends up helping this wounded soldier that she finds by the river, like, you know, giving him some, some healing salve and some, uh, you know, some bandages and, 
takes away his rifle at one point because she she doesn't you know most importantly she doesn't want there to be any fighting and and that's that's sort of her father's thing too just no more no more war no more fighting and he's pretty cute he's cute but he's not as cute as uh ivan uh yeah he's cuter (laughs) (laughs) the uh her her betrothed or her her, uh you know the the boy that she's most interested from the village uh is is sort of the, the biggest actor in ukrainian cinema at the time ivan uh Mikolaychuk, he plays Roman in this film, and uh, he's he's the you know he's this the lead actor in Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors. He's even in the Stone Cross, but in in a pretty small role. He's one of the Ivan's sons, but uh, yeah, in this he's got he's he's very like charming, and he 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 does have a lot of a lot of star power. You you can sort of see him uh, both actually both of the leads the uh, the woman who plays Anichka. Um, is also she's wonderful she's she's great and she didn't have i mean i think she was fairly famous from this movie but she didn't have the the kind of the big career that uh that mikolajczyk did um and old andre is a grigory grigory (laughs) rue i can't say gregory gregory is is the separatist who also went on to have a career but yeah i mean he's he's cute but i don't think he's anything special in this movie but roman this this boy that she uh that she's most interested in like uh it's sort of there there are these two villagers that uh that are both kind of interested in her you know want to want to marry her and uh, they have they have a dance battle at one point and uh, <laughs> and roman wins and uh like just the look on Anishka's face watching this uh, this dance competition that's clearly for her benefit is like she she was she's really hot to trot and she's like that's part of what makes this movie so compelling is that her her performance like she's just you know she's probably eighteen or something like she's you know she's she's had her sexual awakening and she's you know she's ready to to get it on so there's you know these like. <laughs> Three, three different men that she's, uh, you know, interested in and, and we're, we're sort of waiting. And that's, but that's part of what adds to the melodrama of the film is it's, uh, trying to figure out who, who she ends up with. Uh, Roman ends up as, uh, as a, uh, a police officer for the Nazis and, uh, you know, sort of proud of his uniform when he, when he first puts it on. But when he sees the sort of horrors that, uh, that the Nazis are committing, he's really, He's sickened that he's, he's joined up with them. And, uh, Anichka is especially disgusted with him, um, because the other, the other guy who's interested in her, Ivanko, is, um, we find out later, and she finds out later that he's been helping the separatists and he's sort of fighting against the Nazis. And, uh, at one point he and, uh, several other separatists have been, uh, have been rounded up and they, uh, they're asked, they're forced to dance on glass, uh, for the Nazis entertainment. And when they, in a really fucked up scene. Yeah. It's, it's really disturbing, but you know, in a way that it's, it's all part of the drama of the film. It doesn't like, it's not scarring the way that the, it's not the whole, conscience disturbing. Yeah. The, the way that the conscience really just is, is so horrifying. And this is just, you know, an awful scene that uh, is important to the, the drama of the rest of the film. And, and, uh, yeah. these rebels are, are shot down by the Nazis because they won't dance on glass. But Ivanko, he's, he's the last one left and he's like, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll dance on this glass. He says, he says, who's higher now? Like, you know, like you guys mm. think you're better than me basically. And 
then they shoot him too. So yeah, for his for his boldness. But uh, yeah, after that, uh, Anichika is is uh, disgusted with Roman and uh, you know, doesn't want anything to do with him because he's you know, part of this whole you know that he's a nazi collaborator and uh and that it definitely it it really forces her into the arms of this uh the soviet soldier who's uh who's wounded and she's been helping so her father her father gets involved finds out that she's she's been helping this guy and uh and just ends up making things worse but i don't i mean it's it's such a it's a it's a really enjoyable film well made easy to watch film that uh, I don't want to spoil what happens, but uh, I, I highly recommend Anichika. There's so many good scenes in this movie. I, I'm with you. Like, it's not that the script is so wonderful, but the acting is really compelling. And, you know, like that Nazi party where, you know, Anichka realizes who the Nazis are because she's finally face to face with them. And she's, of course, you know, the one who's dressed really traditionally, like Hutzel, like wrapped hair, like embroidered clothing. And all these Nazis are in their like black uniforms. And, you know, she gets asked to, to you know, Roman asks her to sing a song to share culture. And, of course, all these Nazis don't give a shit about, <laughs> you know, and here she is like singing this, like, you know, like be- beautifully singing and and. And just she's so out of place. She thinks like this is, oh, this is fun. Like this is a party. Like I've never been to anything like this. And then suddenly this party, of course, then takes this turn of, and now here's the time we watch people get tortured, you know? Mm-hmm. And so she's like horrified and she's like screaming in horror and trying to get them to stop. And everyone's looking at her like, uh, what party did you think you came to? Like, you know, it's this, it's really well done sort of really uh that banality of of evil you know it's like this idea that that nobody is conscious of like well this is horrifying they're like this is what you do to these dirty ukrainians (laughs) you know like it's very like it it's a it's sort of natural kind of uh viciousness that i think is more true to to life than when you have something like say i don't know like inglorious bastards or some you know some kind of like fantasy nazi movie where it's just like the nazis are like evil and cruel all the time and they're always trying to be evil and cruel like you know this this movie is like it is does have hysterical evil nazis but like it kind of shows them acting out violence in this like the 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 difference between the ukrainians and the germans and the way the germans see the ukrainians is really the highlight of what's happening here and it's very effective it's very well done yeah i mean it's not it's not an art film like the last few movies we talked about it's just a a a really well-made you know drama um yeah and that and that deals with the the consequences of of these things because roman from this point onward now has ptsd and we watch him kind of dealing with the fact that he is a nazi you know soldier policeman and has to start bullying every you know he has to fit in and he wants to fit in he doesn't know how to not fit in and yet he's struggling with you know what he saw and and who he is and you know his own identity and and like that's like a that kind of subtle level of of detail that makes this so compelling yeah it also seems like this may be what the soviet censors or the the soviet the soviet film industry was after when they were looking for a a distinctly Ukrainian cinema. I mean, it tells a story. The Soviets are are you know portrayed in a positive light 
throughout or, or, you know, at least the, uh, the ones who are fighting against the Nazis. Um, and, uh, I mean, there's, we do get dialogue where the, the, the father is, is swearing about the Soviets and, and talking about how, how he wants nothing to do with them. But we do, they do end up being the, you know, the heroes, the, the people who, whose side we're on, uh, for sure in this film. This, and, and this film was, you know, really well received at the time. You know, one of the most popular, it was one of the most popular Ukrainian films of the sixties. Um, and, uh, it's still, still well loved. This is another, the stone cross. This one was also recently restored. So it looked great. Uh, the, the subtitles were a little better in this one, but, uh, yeah, I think, uh, by 1969, when this film came out, we finally, have stumbled upon what it was that the the censors the didn't know themselves what they were looking for from U, a, a Ukrainian cinema, and, and then you know, finally it was realized with this one. I mean, I'm sure there were others, but uh, this is well. And it, it turns out that the thing that they wanted wasn't poetry. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it wasn't arts films. It was it was like a very standard you know narrative kind of movie that was well acted, and you know, as far as, of, of all these movies, I really liked this movie, but it wasn't exciting you know like it just felt like a movie yeah i mean i didn't other than it being a really solid film i didn't feel like i discovered any anything that had been lost to the ages it's just uh you know what it, it could have been made anywhere it just happens to deal with these you know hutzel people and their you know very their very distinct way of life and uh, and that's what makes it ukrainian like not it has nothing to do with the way the story was told which is fa- fairly straightforward way it's almost like star wars or something. yeah <laughs> because i not it not in any visual way but just that like the plot is a woman coming you know having an awakening of like actually the separatists or you know like uh, i'm being oppressed and and i'm going to to back the separatists you know like and and so in that sense, yeah, it's it's not even that unique. It's not even that uniquely Ukrainian, I guess you could say, uh, as far as a, the plot is concerned. Obviously, the details are and, and the, the situations are. I'm sure that you could say there's a Ukrainian spirit involved. But also, you know, really what it comes, it boils down to is this idea of the awakening to, you know, the, the, the Soviet truth, which I'm sure is what censors and the government was happy about. Mm-hmm. And it works because that's that's what the story is, you know. It's like there's no other story. Was she going to be like, well, and then we, you know, the Nazis were great and they tortured and killed everyone I loved. The end, you know. It's like there's no other choice here. It's the drama is so well realized though that it doesn't feel like propaganda. In retrospect, you can no. see see how it it do, it does have a a purpose, a, a propagandistic purpose, but it doesn't feel like propaganda in any way when you're watching it. No, this is like a solid, it's really a solid movie and it's, and it's subtle in, in everything. It's subtle in how it treats its characters. It pays a lot of attention to their wants and needs and, uh, you know, their emotions. And, and that's what I love about this movie was just every character has this inner emotional life. You know, even the father, you know, there's a scene in the end and I won't spoil it because I agree. I, there is some, there's a lot of, um, good twists and turns that, that kind of, you know, you don't expect, but there's a scene where, you know, she says, uh, 
you know, the father says, I thought I was saving you. And she, you know, her response to him is like, you almost killed me, not physically, but emotionally. I mean, like, you know, mm-hmm. he's trying to make decisions because he loves her and he wants her to be safe. And she's trying to make decisions from like a more moral, uh, you know, righteous path. And, and like, you know, the, his quote unquote selfishness, as far as his concern to, you know, an isolationism and, and which of course is all anti-Soviet uh, ideals versus her love of the collective. But, you know, it's, it then becomes this ideological push and pull, which is, again, it, it, it's, it's great. It's just great storytelling. Yeah. This was a great batch of films. I mean, every one of them, even the ones that I didn't enjoy as much as the others were still really like, they gave me a, a, a real insight into what, was going on in Ukraine. I mean, the, the one thing that really was missing from this batch of films is something that was, you know, a film that was talking about what life in Ukraine was like in the sixties, like nothing, you know, right. all of these are, are set, you know, either during world War two or in the turn of the century or in the, you know, or even before that, nothing is set in, you know, showing you how people were living then, you know, I, I would be really curious to see a film from the sixties like that, even if it is a, you know, innocuous comedy. Five out of the six were, were produced by Dovchenko film studios. So yeah. And I think that their, their goal to create a Ukrainian cinema based in the traditions of Ukraine is, uh, you know, must be what we're seeing and why we're not seeing you know much of modern life. I bet if we sampled some of the, uh, some of the Odessa Studios films that were made in Russian, we would get to see modern Ukrainian life. But uh, we were we were purists. We wanted to stick to to traditional. I just love that that music. Yeah, <laughs> we got it. We got it in a couple of these movies. Well, so so do you? Uh, how would you define Ukrainian national cinema? I mean, obviously, as we said, you know, maybe Anishka got the closest to what censors were interested in or what the studio specifically was interested in. But um, I feel like it's, it's hard to say considering all, I mean, and obviously we're, we have a big glaring uh, empty spot where Parajanov and, and uh, Ilyanko are, but um, I feel like there is, there's definitely a very clear picture of Ukraine through all of these movies. Yeah. I mean, their heart is definitely in the in the villages in the in the mountains of Ukraine. That's, Strong love of nature for sure. Yeah, and a, a, a kind of a fierce individualism, I think, is is which none of these are like. I feel like you could say this about any country. That like, I mean, these are all such broad things. But I, at the same time, they're definitely. It's funny that you know, in their search of of. Ukrainian national cinema, they end up really finding so many interesting corners of it, considering they, they hated half of them. <laughs> considering they said they didn't like most of them. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, and the, the sample that we've, that we've viewed, I'm, I'm not sure we can really say too much without seeing like the other. No, I mean, what does the, it mean to you specifically? To me? Um, yeah, just what I was saying then. Um, however modern we may get, uh, that we're still, uh, you know, we're still going to wear our, uh, embroidered shirts and, and quilted jackets and, uh, head, head scarfs and, 
yeah, that, uh, and I think that part of that is really just trying to, to show themselves as distinct from the Russian Soviets. I'll bet, uh, you know, city life for Ukrainians is probably at the time was not too different than what was going on in the, in the major cities in in Russia. So, um, yeah, to, to get something distinctly Ukrainian, I think they had to commit to this idea of we are the, the people of the small villages in this country or in the sto in the Soviet state. Yeah. I mean, like I'm with you. These were all really excellent films that, um, I think everyone should seek out Ukraine. Great movies in the sixties. Yeah. You can't go wrong with anything we, uh, we watched. I just, here's my thing is that everyone has these goddamn Ukrainian flags that they're hanging outside their homes and stuff. And it's like, now's the time to get actually interested in Ukraine instead of just, <laughs> you know, posing, showing your, sending your thoughts and prayers or whatever. Like, you know, there's, you know, a bare minimum, take an interest in the country if you're repping it. So that's my opinion. Yeah. And I, I also worry that when we talk about a batch of films that are not known by many people um, you know, outside of the core country of origin, you know, that we might lose some people. Like these are the films that I'm, this is the whole reason I'm doing cinema 60 is to find the films that we watch for this episode. And I hope that, uh, that other people are interested enough in Ukraine right now to seek out these fairly unknown films that are as good as anything else coming out in the sixties. So if you made it this far, thank you. Or however you say thanks, spasiba. <laughs> that's I, I know that's Russian. There's, it's pretty similar. Like I think there's there's some mutual intelligibility. Yakuyotobi. That's how you say it. Okay, that was quick. I have Google Translate right here. You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conosceva bene by Piero Piccioni. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out Cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's Cinema60.com. And follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at Cinema60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.